Welcome to the Business Sphere. On this podcast, we want to share real stories and real struggles from entrepreneurs who have been where you are. John Fong interviews business professionals and entrepreneurs in many fields to uncover their successes and challenges. We take a deep dive into their journey and provide you with tips and advice to help your business today. Thank you for listening to The Business Sphere. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode. My guest today is CEO and founder of Dew Wealth Management, Jim Dew. Jim has over 26 years of experience helping build virtual family offices for entrepreneurs. He is also a public speaker and an author. So I'm delighted for you to join me today and interested to learn a little bit about your journey, Jim. Um, so the first question I always ask people, if you don't mind sharing with the listeners, um, people that don't know who you are, just share with us how do you got started, what do people know you by, and you can go as far back as you want, Jim. Sounds good. Well, why don't I start right out of college? So I graduated college with a mathematics degree and a, a, a minor, minor in physics. And when I was in college, actually throughout my upbringing, money didn't matter to me, which is kind of a funny thing because my life is all about money now. I was raised by depression baby parents who really lived very, very frugally. And I was trying to make my dad proud. So I never cared about money. I wouldn't let my parents buy me things. And when I graduated college, I thought, you know, what do I want to do? Well, I want to make a difference and I really don't care about money. Well, when you tell that to a counselor and you have a math degree, the counselor says, you should be a teacher. So I became a public school math teacher. I did that for five years in Arizona and loved the kids, but really after five years hated the system. And really I felt like public education had a lot of problems in in the system and decided I needed to do something different because I wasn't working very well in a broken system. So I did a short stint of door-to-door sales, which we can go down that rabbit hole somewhere. I did, I did that for about a year and a half and learned some great lessons about entrepreneurship from doing door-to-door sales. If you've done door-to-door sales, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, it's, it's actually an interesting experience that you learn a lot from. But I did that while I was finishing my MBA at Arizona State University. My undergrad was at University of Arizona, so I make sure and give a plug to both schools. Uh, and then decided what else could I do? I thought, you know, to make a difference. And I found financial services. I thought I liked numbers. I could help people with their money. And that's also something where I could make a difference. And then four years later, after I started that, I had the epiphany that this system seems pretty flawed too, because really, and still today, it's primarily run by brokerage firms, broker dealers, insurance companies, and banks. And uh, I, I went to my wife, who we've been together for more than 30 years now, and my wife, Mimi, And she was actually born in Korea and they immigrated to the country when she was five years old. So I went to her and I complained about how the system's broken and they're trying to push things through this channel that aren't good for clients. And I went on and on. And after about 20 minutes of of her hearing me complain, she just shrugged her shoulders and said, start your own company, which is kind of what immigrants do, right? They just go, the system doesn't work, start your own company. And I I said, "What what are you talking about? I just said banks, brokerage firms, insurance companies, and she said, I didn't say I knew how to do it. I just said, you know, that's your, that's your solution. So we sat down and talked more about it once I calmed down and decided why not give it a try. So in 1999, we formed our own independent company and realized that we're truly entrepreneurs. And that's why I didn't work well in systems like education and financial services. So once we realized we're entrepreneurs, we thought, why don't we work with people like us? So we started serving entrepreneurs. And then during the journey of wealth planning for entrepreneurs, 
I reached a point where I thought I knew everything there was to know about wealth planning for entrepreneurs and small business owners. And then I learned about this other concept. And I don't know, John, about you, but it was a moment in my life where I just felt like, yeah, I know a lot, but I feel like there's a higher level. There's something else out there that I just don't know. And when I started searching for that, you know, the, the, the mind finds what it's looking for sometimes. I found what billionaires do. And so you may know this, but billionaires create what's called a family office. And a family office is where they'll hire all the needed tax, legal, insurance, and investment professionals, all the attorneys and accountants, as full-time employees serving that one billionaire and his or her family. So when I learned about that, I thought, boy, that's the best idea I've ever heard for wealth planning for entrepreneurs. So I, I started asking around in my network, and luckily I got introduced to the grandson of a billionaire who has a family office. The, the billionaire has a family office in New York City. Uh, flew out there. He made an introduction. I didn't meet with the billionaire, but I met with the family office CEO, learned about their systems and processes. And I thought, boy, this is the best thing I've ever seen for entrepreneurs. There's just one problem. You need typically three or $400 million, give or take, in liquid net worth before you can build one because they're very expensive, but they're worth it. That's why Oprah Winfrey has one. That's why I guess they're divorced. Bill and Melinda Gates have a family office. Virtually every billionaire will create a family office structure. So we had the idea, what if we could create a similar structure for entrepreneurs who have successful businesses, typically you know, making either EBITDA, profit, or salary of more than a million bucks, uh, craft something for them that would create similar results. So that's what we did, and that's kind of been our journey and how we got to where we are today. And now we're growing very fast and have amazing advisors on our team and really just have a passion for what we do and, and how we do it. So that's kind of the journey from college to where I am today. And that's amazing to hear. Um, I'm going to actually ask you a couple questions throughout that journey. Um, transition. I know you went to school for math and became a teacher. And then what was the, the part of the system that was broken that you, you hopefully wouldn't mind sharing with the audience members? Because sure. my, my son's in the public system right now. And Again, yes, there's going to be issues. And I, I know from a teacher standpoint versus a parent is completely different. So you see it from the inside. What did you find that was kind of lacking? Was it more than one-on-one, you know, the, the broken trying to serve everyone and not catered support? Is that, you know, am I kind of hitting something there? Or if you don't mind sharing, Jim? Yeah, it's a great question. And what I would say is, if I were in charge of, of public education, there are two simple changes I would make that would make, I believe, a huge difference in the quality of education that our kids are getting. So when I tell you these two things, you kind of see why I felt like and still feel like in a lot of ways it's a broken system. So the first thing I would do is make it easy to fire bad teachers. When I was a teacher, the best I ever saw in any industry or any field were the best teachers. Amazing people, selfless people, incredible life-changing people. The worst I ever saw in any industry or any field were teachers. I saw some teachers that had tenure that should have been fired 10 or 20 years ago. So number one, make it easy to fire a bad teacher. And it's not easy to fire a bad teacher if you look at the way the systems are set up. And there's no great business in the world. My business, me and my business, if we couldn't fire bad people, we wouldn't have a great business. So that's number one. Number two is flip the way the bureaucracy is set up in public school and, and how people are compensated. Mm -hmm. The person that makes the most difference in the public school education system is the teacher in the classroom. You put the right teacher in the classroom 
and lives will change. Those kids will have dramatic improvements and have amazing increases in their knowledge and their value as a human being. And yet, the classroom teacher is not the highest person, highest paid person in the bureaucracy. The highest paid person are the principals, the superintendents, those people. And I knew those people and I saw the jobs they did. And you know what? You don't need to pay them that much for those jobs. And I'm sure I'm going to offend some superintendents. And often you get some amazing classroom teachers that have to leave to become an assistant principal or a principal or a superintendent to support their family. So I would flip the bureaucracy and the highest paid professional in every public school system should be the classroom teacher, period, end of story. So if you make those two changes, you change education. But I didn't see those two changes ever happening. And I couldn't live in a system where I felt like I could, you know, no one is, is helping me become great because you have these teachers that you can't fire. And I have no opportunity to make more money unless I want to be a principal or a superintendent. And those jobs are not where the difference is made in education. So I'll get on my soapbox, but that's from my experience. No, that's great because great insight coming from an ex-teacher, right? I know here, I, I live in Canada, so it's unionized. And it's hard for tenured teachers who don't really care as much as the new hungry kind of uh, teachers, right? Who want to make a difference, selfless, you know, will actually care about the kids. Um, but of course, it's years in. It's more about seniority. It's all about, you know, working the system. Um, and I love the fact that you mentioned, like, it should be rewarded for the ones that actually make a difference. Like, there should be a vetting system to monitor the track record of the students, how, how they perform, how their feedback and comments and suggestions, you know, get ingrained. Because in the private world, and I know you did sales in door to door, I come from advertising sales and then became uh, working at this agency I own. But the most compensated ones are 100% driven by commission. And we are not driven by salary. We're not compensated unless we perform with a good output with customer relationships, with communication, psychological selling, right? And that's how the private companies operate. Is that what you saw when you started doing, uh, you know, door-to-door -door sales? Well, that's what I saw in teaching. And that's what I saw in the private sector. Door-to-door -door sales, what I learned about that was, first of all, to get rid of my fear of rejection. Okay. It also, it taught me humility because, you know, at the time I had gone from being the math department chair at the high school, which is a respected position, to having people slam doors in my face and act like I didn't even matter as a human being. So that humility was a good lesson. And then the third thing I learned from from door-to-door uh, -door sales was my sales manager, his name was John. He was this huge guy. He was like six foot three or six foot four, probably 260 pounds. All he had done his entire life was door-to-door -door sales. And once a week, you had to go sit down with Big John and you had to fill out this form ahead of time. And it had, you know, how many doors did you knock on? How many people answered? How many presentations did you give, et cetera, et cetera. And the first time I sat down with him, there was a box I didn't fill out. And when I walked into his little office, he said, sit down. I sat. He said, give me the form. And I gave it to him. And then he looked at it and immediately turned it around. And with one of his big fingers, he started pounding on the one square that I hadn't filled. And he said, what number goes in this square? And as soon as I started to talk, he interrupted me. And he said, no, no, no. A story doesn't fit in that square. A number fits in that square. And when you give me the number, I've already heard the story. And it was a shell shocker, but you know what I learned? You need to know your numbers. And we still need entrepreneurs who are making a ton of money and they don't know their numbers in their business. 
you have to know your numbers if you're going to grow and scale and be highly profitable. That's amazing. I mean, it's so foundational as an entrepreneur to know all metrics, cause, profit, sales, lifetime value, customer, advertising spend, acquisition costs. But if you haven't read Profit First, Mike, uh, you know, I forgot his last name, but it's a great book. I was very fortunate to have studied finance and I married an accountant. So in terms of numbers, we've been very fortunate to always watch our books. But I also had a sales background for 10 years. And these are some skill sets as an entrepreneur you need to know. Because if you want to be successful, if you want to endure multiple years of success and continue doing what you do, you got to ensure that it's you know, profitable. It, it, like you don't go into business wanting to lose money. Right. You need Definitely. to know your numbers, your break even, your cash flow, your EBITDA, your everything. Um, and it's great that you learned it in sales, right? So after that sales career, I know you went and got your MBA and you got your postgrad. Did you work in any uh, corporate or financial institution before you started working and started your own um, business? I didn't. I went into financial services, but I did have a stint as a manager in financial services. So what they did my first year, I had no warm market. So just as you can imagine, I only knew teachers and teachers don't make good prospects for wealth planning typically right? because they don't make enough money. So when I got the job offer, they were reluctant because they said, you have no warm market. So luckily I had done door to door sales. So I did direct mail to cold call, direct mail prospects to see if they wanted financial planning or in those days, you know, do you want to buy a mutual fund or any of that kind of stuff? And then I just drive out to their houses. So I'd work my first year. I worked like crazy. I was in a cubicle with 30 other at the time. It was all guys. And this is, you know, 26 years ago. And I said to myself, cause I saw some guys in cubicles that had been there 20 years. And I said, I'm not going to be in a cubicle in 20 years. There's no way. So I was working insane hours working almost every day and having you know, really terrible quality leads, but I just worked enough of them to where after my first year, they, they made me rookie of the year in the Phoenix office. And then what they did in those days, they said, hey, we need to keep building your practice, but we need you to teach young advisors what you did. So we're gonna make you a manager as well as you're gonna build your practice. And actually that was great because as a manager, I got to see some of the bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. And then I had a mentor who made me a compliance officer. And I said, why would I want to do that? And he said, because you're going to get 20 years of experience in one year. You're going to go to five Western states. You're going to audit all these financial advisors with experience. And not only do you audit them to protect them from, in those days, the NAS, NASD, today's FINRA. But in addition, you can ask them any question you want. How did they market their business? How did they grow? What mistakes did they make? And so I did. I learned so much in that one year of doing compliance. But I also saw what I hated about the systems and the bureaucracy within financial services about how advice was dispensed, about how people were making money, about how advisors made money, even without the full knowledge of the clients. Uh, so, and that drove me to a big argument I had with my manager and then went home and complained to me. And like I said, she said, start your own company, which was great advice, but not what I expected to hear. That, that's a great a summary of that one year um, because if you're able to ask whatever questions you want 
in with successful business owners or people that were able to scale and grow their company, it's like a gold mine. These are like mentors that you don't even have to pay for. And this is being paid to for you, right? To work at a salary job or whatever it may be. So it was great that you were able to engulf in that kind of work experience, right? So coming out of that, and so the next stage of building your business, right? Um, how long did it take you to figure out what you wanted to do? And then what did you actually do to make it happen? Only to get to figure out what I wanted to do. Well, what I, I wanted to do, I didn't know all that at the time was to serve entrepreneurs, but also to do it in a way that was disruptive to the industry. And so that came over time. And a big part of that was getting to know the billionaire family in New York and a couple other family offices that I got to know about how they did their systems and their processes. But, you know, something that gets talked about a lot in any type of wealth planning is, hey, we put you before ourselves. And that you hear from all kinds of institutions. But what does that really mean? How much transparency is there really? And what we kind of learned over the years is to ask ourselves a very simple question. Since we were entrepreneurs and had started our own company, we could say to ourselves, well, look, we know everything or a lot about wealth planning and that industry. How would we build it for ourselves? And that was a question we asked over and over. How would we build it for ourselves? Not how would we build it as a business owner trying to make money in wealth planning, but as a business owner that needs help in wealth planning, how would we build it for that person, assuming that's us? Because we're business owners. And so that's the question we asked over and over. And we ended up doing things that most financial advisors and institutions aren't willing or not, or not able to do, which also became a competitive advantage. So that was a, a huge part of our growth. And then another thing, and I'll just give a, a shout out to my friend Cameron Harold. He's written a bunch of books. He's a, a very well-known uh, entrepreneur. He has a company called the COO Alliance, where he coaches COOs, second commands. He was the COO of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And he's got books like Vivid Vision and Double Double and anyway, a bunch of great books. He was so, actually on the show a couple months ago. Oh, great. Yeah, so, so Cameron, so once we kind of figured out how to serve entrepreneurs, how to create the model, how to make a difference... I was sitting with Cameron and he said to me, uh, he said, you have such a great model. Why aren't you growing faster? And what I said, which I regret saying, and I'm embarrassed to say it now to you, but I'll just be transparent about it. I said, nobody can do what I do. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I knew that was ridiculous. And Cameron, as he's a good friend and very smart guy, he beat me up over it. He was like, oh, really? Like, you know, a brain surgeon can't teach someone else how to be a brain surgeon. Like, nobody can do you do what you do. You're so smart with planning for entrepreneurs and all that stuff. And so I, it hit hard and I thought, you know, he's right. Like that's a story I'm telling myself. And he said, the real truth is you haven't found a way to replicate yourself and to have more advisors like you. So I kind of delved deeper into that. And I found this amazing talent, this advisor that really wanted to do different kinds of work and brought him into my firm. And I went back to Cameron and said, okay, how do I train this guy? And Cameron said, well, first of all, don't train him. I said, what do you mean don't train him? He said, well, you're a crappy trainer. I said, well, how, how do you know I'm a crappy trainer? He said, well, how often do you train people? I said, not very often. He goes, then you're crappy. You're, you're never good at something you don't do all the time. So I said, well, what do you suggest? And he said, let them shadow you. He said, you do things you don't even know that you do. Let them shadow you. 
blank copy them on every email, let them sit in on every meeting and phone call. And he'll see things that you're doing you don't even know about. And he, if he's that good, he'll become great. And then you don't have to block off time in your schedule for training. You just do what you normally do. That was some of the best advice I ever got. And then because of that, this young talent became an incredible advisor. And then we started replicating. And so now we have nine advisors in our firm who have incredible confidence that they can deliver amazing results for entrepreneurs. So I'm very happy about our growth and what we've done. And a lot of that is because of that lesson. You know, lots of times as entrepreneurs, we tell ourselves these stories and then we put ourselves in a box without knowing it. Luckily, I didn't have the filter to keep from saying that. And luckily, I had someone as smart as Cameron who just beat me up and, and straightened me out. And that really changed the trajectory of our company. That's amazing to hear. And all it takes is one individual or one discussion or someone to kind of change your perspective on how you run your business or, you know, and maybe if you don't mind me asking, were you a part of a community or how did you come about finding him? Were you reading one of his books or uh, if you don't mind sharing, that would be great. Yeah, no, I, I've, a lot of what I've learned as an entrepreneur has been in different mastermind groups. And so I was the first group I joined, who's been really a friend of mine for more than 20 years is Joe Polish's group, Genius Network. That was a life changing event because so many things I can track back to Genius Network. I'm still a member. Joe's great, but the group's amazing. So that's why I met Cameron Harold was through Genius Network. From there, I met Roland Fraser, joined War Room, which has also been a phenomenal group. Uh, I've also, from War Room, I met uh, Glenn Ledwell and joined Flight Club. I also met um, Joel Marion and joined 100 Million Mastermind. So I'm going to forget some masterminds that we're in, but I'm in some incredible groups with really amazing entrepreneurs. And so I always go there and learn from these great, talented folks and, and get better. And, and that was one of the reasons why Genius Network has been worth every penny I paid to be a part of it. Because I met a guy like Cameron Harold and got to sit next to him and got his guidance that changed how our company functions. And truthfully, we're better today than when it was just me thinking I was so smart. Because when you have nine people working together on giving advice and sharing ideas with the same vision, you get better outcomes. And so that was something that I learned too, is that I don't care how smart you think you are, you're always better in a group of smart people than by yourself. That's a great advice. And um, if you don't mind sharing, like what triggered you to join masterminds? Was it some person, individual? Because a lot of people get stuck. Entrepreneurship, business ownership, everyone feels they can do everything themselves and no one understands what situation they're in. But it's also a big investment and time commitment for a lot of masterminds. Um, yeah. How did you get involved and what triggered you to commit and stay involved? So it was just because, you know, Joe Polish has been a friend of mine and a client for more than 20 years. And as he grew, I grew and what we were doing in our team. And, and so Joe and I were very close. And so I was originally joined Joe's group, I think it was in 2009. And at the time, his group was really mostly direct mail type of entrepreneurs. And I really didn't feel like I fit in, even though I started doing direct mail, as I said, when I started my career in financial services. Uh, and then, so then I, I dropped out and then I just felt like I, I wasn't getting the kind of fresh new ideas anywhere and reading books and watching videos is great, but there's something about being together with other like-minded entrepreneurs. So I actually went to Eunice, who's been Joe's right arm for 
I think 25 or more years. And I asked you, and it's like, hey, has the group changed at all? And this is probably about five years ago. And she said, yeah, there's a lot more, um, a lot more diversity of different kinds of businesses and everything else. Because I didn't want to go to Joe because then yeah, I ha- kind of have to join. You know, I didn't want to express interest in not join because he's a friend of mine. And, and so I said, okay. So I joined and then my wife Mimi joined and that became kind of the epicenter for everything else because we've met so many people. You know, Michael Fishman of Consumer Health Summit. I, I can name so many great people we've met through a genius network. And that was kind of the start of it all. And just luckily, the reason I did it is because Joe was a friend. And I thought this, yeah, let me give this a try. You know, and it was 25,000 bucks, which is a lot of money. But I thought, okay, well, you know, I don't have to join again the next year. And we're lifetime members now. I mean, we'll, my wife and I both are going to be a part of it uh, for sure. So that's it. It's a time commitment. But, you know, I really feel, uh, I saw Jim Rohn speak many years ago and and it was amazing i still have things in my mind that i learned from him that day hearing him speak in person but one thing he said is there's only two ways you change the books you read and the people you meet and i still think that's pretty darn true i mean maybe a movie or a video can change you but the books you read and the people you meet and often i think people of all walks of life underestimate the power of the people you meet and being open to meeting those people and being open to learning from those people. Like I was with Cameron for me to go, yeah, I'm a dummy. You're right. Like I am completely creating a story in my head that's limiting our ability to serve entrepreneurs. That's amazing. And I love that you're sharing this because as an entrepreneur business owner, um, would you advise people to start that earlier or midlife? Like, because business ownership is not for everyone and it's, a very high commitment level, right? For not just your family, but it's your lifestyle, right? It's like, how do you commit to all these people and things in your life? And that's always a challenge for my team, myself, my family, my friends, my everything. So when should you reach out to a mastermind group or like there's EO, there's all these other ones right. there, um, versus try to learn yourself because maybe at the beginning you don't have the funds even to start join a mastermind group. It's very true. So, you know, it's a fine touchy subject as well because I'm a part of a lot of communities online, but I haven't committed to any of these live ones because here in Canada, I can't even fly to the U S yet. Right. So it's a little bit different in this, um, you know, part of the world at this time in the moment of life. So um, when would be a good time, Jim? It's a great question. And I think the first thing that you have to really be clear of is, is where you are now. So a friend of mine, David Baer, very smart entrepreneur, he said, the most important thing in life, and I remember it was in front of an audience, so we asked people, what's the most important thing in life? And people are throwing out all these things. The answer, awareness. And I still think about that. I think David's right, awareness. So being aware of, of whatever your situation is the most important thing. So awareness about where you are if you're an entrepreneur in your journey. And obviously joining a group too soon when you either don't have the funds or you're going to sit in the room and you're not with like-minded entrepreneurs. They're way beyond you. And really, it's not what you need at that moment. So I think being aware of where you are is really important. The other thing is, you know, you want to think about not only where you are, but where you want to get to. And to get from where you are to where you want to get to, you're going to need help, advice, mentorship, and shared ideas from people who are a little bit ahead of where you are, maybe not way ahead. And then there was a a story that an entrepreneur I know, he told me he he met a billionaire who he knows, he actually knows him now pretty well. And he asked him, he said, hey, 
I want to uh, sell, I want to have a hundred million dollar exit. What advice do you have for me? And the billionaire said, have you ever had a $10 million exit? And he said, no. And then he goes, well, then don't worry about a hundred million dollar exit. Think about how to get a $10 million exit. Once you figure that out, then you can figure out how to get a bigger exit. But you know, a lot of people and the billionaire told them, a lot of people tell me, I want to, I want to be a billionaire. How do I do that? Well, are you a millionaire? If you're not a millionaire, get to be a millionaire first, right? So sometimes having that, that vision and knowing where you are is really important. But then you got to stretch. You got to be willing to stretch. And I always say the best investment you'll ever make is in yourself. So if you're investing in your capabilities or your network, the part of your abilities come from your network, investing in your abilities or your network, you usually never go wrong. Again, you don't want to do it so early that you have to put the 25000 on a credit card and you get in a room where you're just trying to get your first bit of revenue and your first customers and people in the room are having millions of dollars of revenue. So awareness and then be willing to, to bet on yourself and to invest in yourself and your network. No, that's great advice. Because I always t tell people it's all about timing and you mentioned awareness, right? Because everyone goes through a lifespan from studying experience, work experience, business, or you're, you're working under a private or public company. Um, and then that whole spectrum of, you know, people in your life, family, friends, mentors, coaches, as well as managers, CEOs, VPs, or whatever it is throughout, um, and learn, like, you know, for me and you, we're entrepreneurs, we think differently, and we've been at it for a little bit longer than yourself if you're just starting. I've only been with this business that I started eight years ago, but 10 years of sales, and I feel a lot more confident doing what I'm doing because now I'm leading a team. Right. And it feels much more uh, comfortable talking about it because I've lived it. Just like you said, live it, experience it and hit a threshold where you're comfortable in stretching yourself to the next level and find people that have already done it before so that you can ask advice um, and don't, you know, try to overstretch yourself like the million to 100 million or a billion, like hit those milestones. Right. One to three or five million exit, get to 10 million you know, and everyone wants to retire with 100, 200 million. But in reality, there's only a small percentage to actually do. So make it realistic as well. And having enough time to do it. So as much as you're seeking out advice, you need to make sure that it fits your lifestyle. Because commitment to family or friends or life is really important. You got to live, you can't just work all day long. Right. So I, you know, from just different discussions with yourself and other people, it just opens up, uh, you know, your mind to endless possibilities because with mentorships and masterminds, it shrinks time. And a lot of people don't understand and grasp that because when you're an entrepreneur and business owner, you're trying to do everything yourself. It's going to take you way longer and it's going to cost you a lot of you know, a rejection or problems and issues and stress problems and psychological problems and money as well, right? So if you're able to acknowledge your gaps, then find a solution to mend that. And then finding people to support that by have already done the, you know, the stuff that you're planning on doing, and they'll give you advice. I mean, that sound advice, you would have paid $100,000 for because now it's been able to grow it, you know, millions of dollars, right? So I love you sharing that, Jim. Yeah, and well said, John. I agree with what you just said as well. So if you don't mind sharing, like throughout this journey, 
and I know there's been great masterminds, people. What were some of the biggest challenges, if you don't mind sharing, and times that you didn't know if you wanted to continue or not? Because everyone goes through it. And I'm sure you, me, everyone, every entrepreneur have these weeks or months of like, why am I doing this? I just want to get back to my normal salary and live that life. Well, the biggest I just told you is like how to replicate myself. And one thing I always tell every entrepreneur about building business value is your company is more valuable when you de-risk it for a buyer. And one of the best ways to de-risk it for a buyer is make the business less reliant on you. So obviously in the, in the beginning, your business is you, and that's, it takes all your time and effort. But eventually you want to start thinking about how can you make the business less about you? And that not only gives you a more valuable business, but also gives you freedom where you don't have to work. So that's one of the big things that we struggle with. Another struggle that we had is the kind of the, the, the wealth planning industry is very set in its ways. It it's, makes a lot of money for these you know, for advisors and for these big companies. And so they, they don't really change. And so because of that, I think initially we felt like what we had to do is the same kind of model that exists in wealth planning, but just try to do it better, service people better, care more and all that kind of stuff. But really the truth is, yeah, people care. They want you to, they, they care about whether you care or not, but they really don't care as much as they care about the results you get for them and how easy it is to work with. And so the three questions that I've learned, I'll just pass this on to your, your listeners and your viewers. Here are the three questions that we've asked ourselves over and over to get through hard times and to come out the other end and to have a better business. So the first question is, who do you serve? Who are your customers and clients? And get very specific. If you say everyone, or you say women, or you say men, that's not specific enough. Because if you say everyone, then you need to be Walmart. Because Walmart competes on price and they crush everybody on price, right? Now, maybe Amazon now is starting to beat up Walmart, but don't get into the arena where you serve everyone. Who do you serve? Get as specific as you can. The second question is, what problem of theirs do you solve? Be very specific. And by the way, people will pay way more for solving a problem and they'll be way more loyal to solving a problem than they will for giving them some benefit or gain or make them feel good about themselves. All that stuff's important, but people avoid paying more than they seek pleasure. So what problem do you solve? And then the third question is, how do you do it in a way that's different or better than their other options? I meet entrepreneurs all the time. I ask them those three questions. They can't answer those three questions. Some of them have very successful businesses. And so every time we get stuck or we'd have a challenge, we felt like, are we really growing? Are we really getting better? Are we adding more value to our, our customers and our clients? Those three questions would always take us back to focus on what we needed to focus, focus on to get where we wanted to go. That's amazing tips. Thanks a lot, Jim. Uh, regarding the timing, I know you've been at it for 26 years. When did you decide that you, you can't do it yourself to start replicating yourself? Did you, and in the meantime, did you already start working on systems and processes, making sure that everything is as efficient um, and making sure that whoever's replicating it knows exactly how to do it properly? Like at what stage in your journey did you decide to start uh, implementing some of that? Yeah, when I got to a point where I felt like I was starting to burn out because it was all up to me. And I also felt like I was not able to serve as many entrepreneurs as I would like to serve just because I have only so many hours in a day. 
And I also realized that there was no way I could sell my company because my company was me. So those, all those things, those ingredients came together and I thought, okay, I need to figure out a way. And so I started doing systems and processes. But here's the thing about entrepreneurs. Most entrepreneurs are not good at creating systems and processes and especially things about standard operating procedures and all that kind of stuff that a private equity firm loves to see when they're buying a company. Entrepreneurs are usually terrible at that stuff. So I started putting that together. It was more of a framework of how to give advice, how to deliver advice, and how to think about serving clients than it was the actual details of everything that then create all the standard operating procedures. So I had that in my head. And then as I started to add employees, I found people that love to do that. So just think about it. Anything that you hate to do, there's somebody who loves to do what you hate. And I don't care if it's cleaning houses. I, I hate cleaning pretty much you know, the house or anything else like that. But there are some people that love that. Now, maybe the people cleaning your house, if you have house cleaners, maybe they don't love it. Maybe they aren't the people that, that love it that, like they should. But there's someone who's going to love what you hate. And there's people who love to put together standard operating procedures and help build those parts of the business. So once we got people to do that and then I could share my vision, then we started ramping up on, on that kind of stuff. Because remember, same thing. When you're, when you're building a business, entrepreneurs get rich by being concentrated in the business. I mean, 95%, this is a statistic I heard not long ago, 95% of Americans who have more than $20 million of liquid net worth and I call that seriously wealthy, 95% of them own a small business. So we know if you want to play on the probabilities, and I always say, live your life on probabilities, not possibilities. That's kind of my math background. I always bet on math. But the probability is if you want to get rich in America, and that's the definition of rich that we could use for this conversation, your best bet is to own a small business and be concentrated in that small business. But ultimately, if you want to have freedom, you've got to get that business to run without you, whether you're going to sell it or continue to run it without you being involved in the day-to-day -day operations. So that's a critical piece, I think, for every entrepreneur to understand. Now, when you first start out, you're not even thinking that. But eventually, you want to get to a point where the business runs without you or with very little of your input, because then you have a sellable entity that you can have a life-changing liquidity event, or you can just run it as a cash cow and still get to take trips to Europe and do stuff with your family and see your kids grow up. That's amazing. amazing because what a lot of business owners and entrepreneurs don't see is the big picture. They're so in the business, they don't ever work on the business. And we always talk about like the gaps. What you mentioned is what you enjoy doing, hire people for things that you hate doing. Just like your home, if you hate cutting the lawn, you hate the plumbing issues and you hate cleaning, cooking. There's restaurants out there. There's cleaners. There's lawn care people. There's junk removers, right? Like things. And within your business, it's the same thing. There's accountants, bookkeepers for people that hate numbers. There's sales reps for people to do the sales if you hate talking to people, right? In terms of the customer relations, there's account managers. There's things that you enjoy doing. Focus on what you enjoy and then work on the bigger vision, the goal, the core values and understanding like when you scale and grow and you're kind of a brand as opposed to a sopreneur or you're, you're the business, right? A lot of professionals, however, like the dentists, the lawyers, they're branded by the, their name, right? And for them to remove themselves, to then work on the system, the challenge is they're so 
into the process. They're so into it and it's hard to replicate because their you know, mindset is like they know more than anyone else and they can't replicate it. How do you, uh, you know, talk to those type of people that may be listening? Well, I think that one thing, you know, it takes, so we have dentists who are entrepreneurs and doctors who are entrepreneurs who have, you know, multiple type, um, multiple facilities or multiple practices. So one thing is, I think you have to put your, your hat on as an entrepreneur and not a professional. And so if you're truly a professional and you're going to be a lawyer or a doctor or a dentist or something like that, and you're going to do your work and you're going to have your assistants or your nurse or whomever is helping you do that kind of work, then that's what you do. But if you want to grow beyond that where the business isn't dependent on you, then you've got to put on your entrepreneur hat. And the entrepreneur hat would say, okay, can I create systems processes? Can I create a business around this where I have other doctors, dentists, or lawyers who are doing the work, then it's less dependent on me or not dependent on me at all. So I, can I create value in a structure like that so that I can have these great professionals who want to be professionals, but I can be the business owner or entrepreneur. So again, awareness. If you don't have the chops to do that, then just be happy you're a professional and, and serve your, your patients well or your customers or your clients well. And, and accept that and understand that about yourself. Because not everyone's an entrepreneur. I mean, it's a sexy thing to think about. But if you really don't have the chops to do it, you can get yourself into trouble and spend a lot of your and your family's money if you're not, if you're not careful. The other thing I'd say about your, your point that was so well taken about do the things you like and, and hire people to do the things you don't like. In the beginning, the successful entrepreneurs are the ones that are willing to do the things that others are not willing to do. So when I was a teacher, I used to mow my own lawn. And I told my wife, and this is the problem when you're, you're with uh, a woman for, when you have a spouse for, you know, 32 years, uh, they remember everything and they bring it back and remind you. And so when I was mowing my own lawn, I said, I'm never going to hire someone to mow the lawn. She said, you're never. And I said, never. And she goes, but you hate it. And I said, yeah, but there's no way I'm paying someone to mow the lawn. I'd rather keep the money for myself. She's reminded me of that because guess what? I don't, mow, I don't mow my lawn anymore. But I did for years until I was speaking to a friend of mine, another entrepreneur, and he goes, what are you doing this week? And I said, I'm mowing the lawn. He goes, oh, you like doing that? I said, hey, I hate it. I hate mowing the lawn. And he said, well, then why are you doing it? I said, because I'm not going to hire someone to do it. He goes, wait a second. He goes, what do you make per hour? I said, I have no idea. So he goes, let's write that down. He goes, how much revenue do you, does your company generate? And let's divide that by 2,000. That's 40 hours a week times 50 weeks. And you know, he said, you could go in the office and work for an hour and you could pay for someone mowing your lawn for an entire year. Don't you like what you do? And I said, I love what I do. And he goes, then why would you mow the lawn? But boy, that's smart. So I stopped mowing the lawn. Now we have a pool person. We have someone that does the grocery shopping, someone that cleans the house, you know, all those kinds of things. My point though is in the beginning, when I was a teacher, I should have been mowing the lawn because I would make more, I, it would cost me more. The guy mowing the lawn would make more than I did as a teacher. So there are times in your life you've got to do the things you don't want to do. And sometimes I see young entrepreneurs like, okay, I'm going to outsource all the stuff I hate to do. No, no, no. The first thing you have to do is get to revenue. The second thing you have to do is get to profit. And once you get to profit, don't lose the idea that profit is important. You want to keep growing your profits over time. That's the lifeblood of your business that allows you to invest in yourself and your company to grow and to get bigger and do better things. So in the beginning, do the things you hate. And just, you know, like my mom used to say, my mom grew up on a farm. She said, you know, whistle while, while you work. Think of it as I'm grinding this stuff for something better because one day I'm not going to mow the lawn. But today, I'm going to mow the lawn. Yeah. yeah this is well taken, dude. I mean, 
I loved everything you mentioned there because it's so to the core and it's so authentic, right? When you're starting off, you got to put your hat on and get grind and dirty, right? You got to like learn everything. But as you mature, and maybe it's not for everyone too. A lot of people have to figure out like what is their thing. They might want to be a dentist or lawyer or whatever and never want to grow a business. And they're okay with that stable income. And that's fine, right? Because more income, more revenue, more profit means more responsibility and also more obligations, more stress. And so therefore, you have to see what lane you want to go in, right? Like if you want to, like my goal is to hit 100 million. Well, you got to reverse engineer like at what stage do you feel you need to hit in terms of revenue and how long are you willing to put in the time and effort and you know can you do you have bandwidth right now in your life to commit to it right and timing is everything right it's like different life stages different lifespans you know when you're in your 20s you're just discovering yourself but as you mature in your 30s that's when you maybe take some risks right but family obligations like there's a lot of things to consider and you only know it better than anyone else. So figure it out and have fun, right? I always tell people like, you got to enjoy what you do or else why do what you do, right? And people can see it. Right? Like your clients will know if you're passionate doing what you love or not. And if you're in business ownership and you're stressed, you're miserable and you're talking bad about your staff or your clients, people will see it, right? So is that something you want to continue doing or find something that actually you enjoy waking up every morning doing because you're serving value to your clients, right? And people or people that you serve. So have fun. A lot of people forget that. Definitely. And even if it's not fun, if you can create a compelling vi vision about what you're trying to, why, like, why do you want to get wealthy? Why do you want, why do you want to have a su successful business? And create some big dreams out there. You know, some want to create a dynasty. And a dynasty is multi-generational wealth that goes on more than five generations, right? That's a compelling thing that could pull you forward. Others want to, you know, build orphanages in, in Africa. Or others want to have a private jet and a house on the water and passive income of 50000 a month. That's okay, too. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm saying create a vision of what's going to pull you forward because there are going to be times when it's no fun. It's going to be times when you're grinding and, and times when you ask yourself, why the heck am I doing this? That's when you grab that vision about the future, about what do you want? Why are you even doing this? And then that can pull you through those hard times. That's amazing, Jim. Um, just the final last couple questions. This has been so much fun. I, I could go on for hours, by the way. Um, but I wanted to ask you, um, networking with some of the people that you've met over the years. Is there anything in there that actually pulled you in the right direction where you can now say these people or during this time in my business or life stage, this one nugget changed the outlook of what I wanted to now see for my next generation or my next 10 years, 20 years in my life? Yeah, I'd say the I had an epiphany where I started losing passion for what I was doing. And what I realized was the way we were serving clients wasn't the model that I wanted to, to have. I wanted more transparency. I wanted more clarity for our clients. And I wanted I, I just reached a point where I talked to my wife Mimi about it. And I said, you know what? We make enough money. I don't need to make more money. 
And as I said, when I was a kid, I didn't care about money at all. I care now because I see it as you can create freedom, you can help others, there's so much you can do, you can have great life experiences. Uh, but I reached a moment like that and I started to feel like, okay, let me really think about what do, how do I want this business to be? And what do I want this business to be remembered for? And forget the money. We make enough money. I don't need to make more money. And once I did that and really started digging into what that would look like, then we started creating a new vision for ourselves and for the company. And I have to tell you, I'm more excited than I've ever been in my life for the business we're creating, for the way we're serving entrepreneurs, for the friendships and the, the wisdom I get from our clients. You know, I mean, I have the, the lucky position that we have some of the smartest, most talented entrepreneurs in the world who are you know, clients of ours and, and people that we know. So I learn from our clients every day and we have a great team and a great culture at our, at our firm. But all that happened just because I stopped and said, you know, I don't feel like I'm having fun anymore. Why? Well, because we're doing things that we're, the way we've always done them. Well, why don't we do them different and find something that is more exciting and more compelling and that's made all the difference. Of course, now one of the problems when you love what you do is trying to turn it off. And so sometimes, you know, my wife Mimi will go, okay, because we run the business together. So she'll say, okay, enough business. You know, it's Saturday night at 6 p.m. I don't want to talk any more business. Let's go out to dinner. And, and that's also a healthy thing because, you know, workaholism is the respectable addiction. And as an entrepreneur, I really can resemble that. And I know that I, I feel I get in that, that mode a lot. So having some checks and balances, being aware, again, of the family relationships and, and what's most important. Because my mom used to say, no one on their deathbed says they wish they had worked more. So make sure you're also having life experiences and investing in the relationships that matter most to you. Amazing. I always tell listeners that it's the relationships and experiences that people remember in their 90s and 100s. And if you do not cherish these micro moments on a daily basis and living presently, then why are you doing what you're doing? So live life, right? Don't, don't feel like you're, you know, in this rat race. Like you got to maybe early days, like you got to figure out how to do things smarter. But as you mature and gain some wisdom and insight from others, then you'll acknowledge what you need to do to leap forward. So I love that. Um, so where do you like go from now like what if you don't mind sharing with the listeners like your your drive your passion is now focused on this next stage um what keeps you going like what is the the one thing that motivates you more than ever um family is it the business is it the relationships like what what drives you jim well i'd say number one would be my marriage my my marriage with my wife mimi is the most important thing in my life and I'd hope she'd say the same, but also the, the, I'd say the thing I'm most proud of is my marriage. So that would be by far number one. And then, you know, friends and relationships would be close behind. And then after that, I'd say, you know, what's most important to me is serving our clients in a way that's different than their other options in a way that's more transparent than their other options. And, you know, to get results that, that uh, we feel like we can get with our clients and really help them in their entrepreneurial journey. And then our team, our employees, the people we work with, you know, creating a great atmosphere for them and a, and a great future for them is important to me as well. And I'd say those would be the most important things in my life in that order. Amazing. Well, thanks a lot, Jim. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on this uh, show. Um, so tell us a little bit about the book that you wrote and 
how people can reach out to you or check you out? The book is Beyond a Million, The Entrepreneur's Playbook for Expanding Wealth, Freedom, and Time. Actually, my friend Dave Asprey came up with the title when we were hanging out in Alaska together. Uh, so thank you for that, Dave. And it's really a book for entrepreneurs who are at a level. Yeah, there's Dave. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Uh, he's, by the way, Dave sold a few more books than I have. Uh, so yeah, Beyond a Million, it's a, it's a great book for entrepreneurs. I put a lot of uh, good ideas and value in there. And I really wrote it for entrepreneurs who have successful businesses already, but I've had entrepreneurs who told me it was a great read and gave them a lot of ideas and a vision about where they could go to. So I think, and I even had, you know, my, one of my best friends who introduced me to my wife, Mimi, we were college roommates. He's been a professor of social work. So what would he care about my book? And he actually said he got a lot of value out of the book. So I guess it could apply to a lot of people, but it's really written for entrepreneurs. And then really, if you wanted to check us out, our website is dowealth.com. That's our last name, D-E-W, the word wealth, W-E-A-L-T-H.com. And that's kind of about what we do if, if you were interested in that. But the book's a good read. It's also, I, I did the audio book as well as I did uh, the Kindle versions on there as well. You know, one funny side story, if we have time, is my mom, who passed away a couple of years ago, when she was in the hospital, my book came out. So my book's been out for about three years. And she calls me up from the hospital and she's all excited. And she said, did you know your book's on Amazon? I said, mom, everybody's book is on Amazon. And she was so excited. And uh, I said, but how'd you know? Because my mom was not on the internet at all. And she said, well, the nurse came in and I said, my son wrote a book. And she said, well, what's the name of the book? And she pulled out her phone and said, yeah, he's on Amazon. So anyway, it is on Amazon, which everyone knows everyone who has a book is on Amazon. But that's a little funny story about my mom. That's amazing. <laughs> Well, thanks a lot, Jim. All the show notes, uh, all the contact information will be there. Um, again, I want to thank you for your time. Great insight value that you brought to the listeners. And I had fun. Hopefully you did as well. Um, but I, I do want to thank you for uh, presenting and sharing with the listeners some valuable tips, tricks, and insight on your journey. And for sure, we'll stay in touch. Thanks a lot. Thanks, John. I enjoyed myself. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our latest podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to The Business Sphere and share this episode. Tune in next week for more interviews from entrepreneurs. Bye.